starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not know, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Would you please bow your heads with me? Father, for your word this morning, we thank you. We trust you that what you command, you will give. What we need to know is stored safely up in this, your revealed word to us. And it is available to us now if we will have ears to hear. Grant that by your spirit and glorify your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be talking about the eternity, or some theologians say the eternality of Christ because of this statement that he makes in the end of our passage in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You might already have some background on the weightiness of that phrase and what he means in responding to this accusation. Are you greater than Abraham? Who do you make yourself out to be? Have you even seen Abraham? Jesus says something earth-shattering about his, not only his character, but his nature, who he truly is, the eternal, that never-ending nature of God that Jesus shares with his Father. Now, in thinking about eternity, we have to recognize the confines of time that we are inside of right now. If you even kind of imagine the sanctuary, it's easier for me because I'm looking at you all. You look like you're sitting in a box, sort of. You can see the walls here. But this is, this is in one sense what time is for us. It, it leaves borders and boundaries and limitations for us, and particularly in our understanding of eternity and God's relation to it. In thinking about some of the longer things that go on, I was thinking about how you know, opening day is coming up in Cleveland uh, next, this coming week, the 15th. And with baseball starting, it reminded me that of all the sports, baseball seems to be the one that can last the longest. It doesn't always um, certainly, uh, there's other sports that can go longer than a baseball game, but other sports have quarters and they have time frames, right? I don't know. I'm not a football guy. I'm sorry. How long is a football quarter? Like 15 minutes or something? 12? Maybe? 
something like that. But in baseball, you don't have that. You have nine innings. You have the top of the inning and the bottom of the inning, depending on the visiting team and the home team, who gets to stand at the bat. And that, those innings, those half innings can go on for eternity, really. And not literally, but they don't have a definitive end point until those three outs are made, right? Well, I had to look it up and see what was the longest baseball game that was ever played. And in the AAA International League, uh, this was back in 1981, there were the Pawtucket Red Sox and the Rochester Red Wings. And they played a game on April 18th, 1981, that lasted 33 innings. Usually there's only nine. And that nine-inning game will probably last about three hours, right? 33 innings. This game lasted for eight hours and 25 minutes because there was no confines. There was no time frame to say, hey, the inning can only be 12 minutes long. The quarter can only be so long. Well, they played 32 innings on April 18th, and then they came back on June 23rd because the game was still not over. And they played the 33rd inning on June 23rd of 1981. The 33rd inning. Can you imagine starting up that game? and say, Do you throw out a first pitch for a game that's already started? I don't know. But they played that one inning, and you've got to imagine the crowd particularly mixed with excitement, but also anticipation of how long is this game really going to last because it's already begun. And it was over in one inning. Final score, 3-2. to two. It doesn't even have like an impressive number at the end of it. You played all those innings tied up, locked in with no end in sight. In some ways, this is kind of seen in our sports culture as a moment of greatness, right? That they accomplished such an unseen feat. But ultimately, at the same time, it's also kind of embarrassing. It's like, why couldn't somebody just score a run and end this thing? You can only eat so many hot dogs and refill the popcorn so many times when you're at the stadium. I mean, eight hours and 25 minutes. Now, if we think about that as a long time, we consider that as an unusually long time in the context of a baseball game. And then if we try to apply that to our understanding of the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, we are completely wrong and completely backwards. It's important for us to remember that God made man in his image. And when we try to understand who God is and what God is, we must not make him in our image, even in this way of understanding time and eternity. We need to start with who God is when we try to define who God is and not start with ourselves. In fact, if we want to define ourselves, we still need to start with who God is because we were made in his image, not the other way around. So if you're trying to grasp the idea of Christ existing for all of eternity, and that is to say that he never had a starting point and he will never have an ending point. And you look at yourself and you look at your life in Christ and say, okay, I had a starting point. I was born. I was created. But now that I'm in Christ and I have his eternal life, I don't have an, a true end point, right? Praise the Lord. What a marvelous thought for us this morning. Eternal life doesn't have an end point. So we can almost sort of get that a little bit, but we cannot grasp the idea that Jesus has never had a beginning before. That's over, uh, it's impossible for us to comprehend. Everything you experience in your daily life has a beginning and an end. 
Your day has a beginning and the end, the week, the month, right? Your children coming into your life and growing up. You remember when they came in and you'll, you know, you'll remember when they go out. But Christ is not like this. So I used to teach middle school, and, and one of my favorite things in, in middle school Bible class was the question and answer time because middle schoolers are raw and real, you know? They don't pull any punches. They don't ask the socially acceptable Bible questions. And, and I especially like it when they would say, like, you, you said we could ask you anything, right? <laughs> you know, those were always fun. But one of the things that just boggled their minds, rightly so, was this matter of the eternal nature of Christ. And so I had to try to explain it to them. And so I'd always talk about a fish tank and how inside of the little aquarium, you have fish living in water in the confines of the four glass walls that they swim around in. And to the fish's perspective, there is no concept of wet or dry. There's just, this is where we are, right? The fish does not come out of the water for a break. He, he lives in the water 100% of the time. Water defines everything about the life of a fish. And as the fish looks outside of its four walls and might be able to see, you know, the other side of the dentist office or wherever the fish tank actually exists, they're seeing a world that is completely different from the one that they experience. And yet their perception once that makes them think, not that, I don't know, are fish philosophical? Maybe not. But if, if a fish woke up one day and said, you know, what is it like outside of the fish tank? Of course, they, they don't even think that there is a fish tank, right? This is just, this is the world. This is all there is. Earth is flat, right? This is all that I have. But if a fish were to start thinking, what is on the other side of this glass wall? The most astounding thing to that fish would be the fact that they're not just all covered in water too. And that's why when you take a fish out of the water, you can see on its expression on its face. What in the world? Where am I? What's going on? There's no water. And in some way, that's been helpful for me in understanding what eternity really is. It's something far beyond my comprehension. And to be brought into eternity is to be like a fish brought out of water into air and, and realizing everything is radically different. Well, this is the doctrine of the passage, the eternality of Christ and the greatness of Christ as well. Again, in the title, we have greater than Abraham. Yes, Jesus is greater than Abraham. He is eternal. He is the I am. He does not have a beginning or an end. Before Abraham was, Abraham had a definitive beginning and end. Jesus says, not I was or I had been or <laughs> those kinds of things. He just says, I am. There is no starting or ending point. So to define the eternality of Christ, perhaps we could say that we're talking about God's existence both outside of and over time and space. He has no start and no end. And in that, he is never diminished and never changed. One of the big things that we wrestle with in the fact of time is that time takes its toll, as we say. Time does damage to us. Time looms over us and reminds us, hey, you started this thing at this time and now it's already this time and you're running out of time. You know, we're closer to Jesus coming back than we were a half hour ago when we started our service. Time is marching on whether you like to stop and slow down and think about it or not. But for God, he, his existence is outside of time, unaffected by it, and over time that he's able to affect the things that happen in time. 
And in that, he is never diminished. He's never changed. He does not run out of godness, and he never changes who he is. So if that's the eternality of Christ, what would the greatness of Christ be? We've seen this word glory a lot in the Gospel of John as we've gone through these eight chapters. And so greatness and glory in some ways are, are sort of twins, I guess. And so the greatness of Christ, we might say this morning, is what is revealed as God enters in and interacts with humans, as he enters into time and interacts with humans who exist inside and under time. So the big difference between us and God, well, there's a lot of big differences. But the big difference is that we think about it this morning in regards to eternity is that God is outside of and over time and we are inside of and under time. We are massively affected by it. We are diminished by time. We are changed by time. We are affected by it. It is the overlord in our schedules. And this passage reveals to us a Christ who has overcome time, who is the creator of time even, who is over and above, never diminished, never changed. Again, Jesus is speaking to a crowd at the Feast of Booths, a time of remembering God's past faithfulness and goodness. And he has used all of the illusions, all of the elements of this festival to point to himself. That's why we've called this series Water and Light. So the rituals that had to do with water and remembering that God gave Israel water out of a rock in the middle of the desert. Jesus says, that's me. When they talk about light and they're, they're doing their, the rituals with light and remembering that God guided them through the night in the wilderness by a pillar of fire, and as they light up the whole city of Jerusalem and realize that the, the light from the temple was lighting up the rest of the city, Jesus says, I am the light, not just of Jerusalem, but of the whole world. And so step by step, Jesus is showing not that those things are meaningless, but rather that they find their true meaning in who he is. And now as they come to this matter of Abraham, who was mentioned last week as well in passages before, uh, you'll remember that they, they brought this up in verse, let's see here, uh, verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you'll say we'll be set free? Abraham is very important to us. Abraham is the marker in time where we remember God interacting with humanity, stepping out of eternity into the confines of time and creating a people out of a man who was far too old to have children and had none at that point in his life. They remember Abraham, they revere Abraham, they honor him, and they, they want to make much of who he is. And Jesus, today's passage, says, yeah, I, I am greater than Abraham. I can't lie about that. Jesus' message, though, is marked not just with a matter of saying, hey, you think Abraham's great? I'm even greater. No, he, he's tactful about this. And, and he's tactful not just in the way that's, that says like, this is going to be received at the end because it's not received. Do you remember the end of the passage? What do they do? They start picking up rocks. Not because they're rock collectors. Like we, we know when we read this, there's a, there's a, it's very clear in verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him in order to do what? To kill him, yeah, to end his life. And this Jesus recognized, again, we saw it last week, 
he recognized that they were working in line with their father, the devil. Look at verse 44. You were of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. What are his desires? He was a murderer from the beginning. And he's saying that your actions and attitudes right now are in line with not your father, Abraham, and certainly not your father, God, but your true spiritual father in the deadness of sin, the murderer from the beginning, the devil himself. So his message is not being received. Jesus' tact is not there so that at the end, people might say, oh, I see why he did that. And and, and now I I get it and and I'm going to receive it. No, rather Jesus is expressing his character here. Remember at the beginning of verse 48, they accuse him of being a Samaritan and a demon. Having a demon rather. I mean, Jesus could have at that moment just said, how dare you accuse the son of God of such things? And snapped his fingers and been done with that. No, instead he explains himself. I don't have a demon. I honor my father. You dishonor me. I don't seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Now this is an interesting thing because we're talking about the greatness of Christ and the eternality of Christ. And it's very essential for us at the beginning of this last part of his conversation to recognize he's not there seeking his own glory. He's seeking the glory of his father, and he knows that that's the father's will as well. The father's will is to glorify the son. The son's will is to glorify the father. So even in the greatness of Christ, we see the humility of Christ. We see his desire to honor his father. And then his ultimate exhortation to the crowd at the end here, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. These kinds of things you can't say and have people accept that you're just a great teacher or or a really good guy or really smart. These are the kinds of things that God alone can truly say. If you keep my word, you will never see death. And that is where the crowd is ready to reject him. So yeah, now we know that you have a demon. Now we know that you're more of a Samaritan than a Jew. You're not really God's people. You're not really sent from God. We're rejecting the greatness that you think you're making about yourself. Look again here. It says, now we know you have a demon in verse 52. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than Abraham who died and the prophets died? What do you make yourself out to be? They can only see in human terms because they live in the fish tank. And Jesus is outside of the fish tank. He doesn't mesh with all their understanding because he is eternal and they are temporary. So as we need to realize the greatness of Jesus, the eternal God, to see him for who he truly is, the conflict that happens for this crowd overall in the rejection of the greatness of Christ has a lot to do with the battle that we face today. That time pursues us, it masters us, and it escapes us. And along with that personal greatness entices us. So just like the Red Sox and the Red Wings, we do everything we can to keep the game going. If we can turn a nine-inning game into a 33-inning, eight-hour ordeal, if we can take our lives and stretch out as much of it as we can, get every moment of every day filled with all that we could ever want and pursue our own greatness 
And that might not look like saying, I want people to think of, myself, think of me as something really great, but we might just say, I think myself pretty great, and I would like to shower blessings on my own life. I would like to make much of myself. So our first problem is that time is our most precious commodity, but it also pursues us, it masters us, and it escapes us. It pursues us because, again, as you're sitting here, maybe even right now, you're thinking, that's 11.15. It was only 10.30 when we got here. Time is moving on. I've got things to do. Time is pursuing us, but time is also mastering us because our schedules that are formed based on the time that we're given can be pretty demanding, can't they? They can become the thing that we think is great. Not that we look at it and go, hey, I want to show everybody my schedule. Look, look, look how great my schedule is. But we attribute greatness to it by letting it rule over us, by letting time be our master. And all the while, as time is pursuing us, is looming over us, that is, and as time is mastering us, it's also escaping us. We can't submit to time in such a way that time will then say, oh, all right, you did this well. Here's all the benefits of worshiping time and of making time truly great in your heart and mind. Time is our most precious commodity, but it's also one of our greatest enemies. It's a cruel slave master. It's an unattainable commodity in our lives. The second problem that we have is that none of us is truly great enough to capture time, to truly make it our commodity. We, we tell ourselves it's a commodity. We live as though it's a commodity. I only have so much time for this and I don't have time for that. The truth is, is that we don't have time. Time has us, right? None of us is great enough to capture time or to redeem the time in such a way that shows our greatness to the degree we'd like it to be. Do you remember the story of Achilles, old Greek myth about this man who was offered by the Greek gods to either live a long and peaceful life, to enjoy all that life has to give over a long period of time, but then at the end be forgotten? Or he could live a very short life and be a part of something, do something so great that he'll never be forgotten. Do you know what he chose? The story would be very boring, and actually the story wouldn't even come true if he chose the first option, to live a long life, but nobody will remember him. This is kind of the strength of that, that Greek myth in, in the cultures that it's been told in, is that he chose that short-lived and glorious life to be a warrior that people will remember, to find glory and greatness in a shorter period of time. Now, if we can accept that time will ultimately pursue us and master us and escape us, is our only hope really just to seek our own greatness? Just to say, okay, I get it. Time is short. It flies by. I mean, think about all the, all the colloquialisms we have about um, re redeeming the time, but, but how time flies. And so many things that we say because we just can't get a grasp on it. So is our right response to be like Achilles and just say, Okay, no amount of, of time is going to be enough for everything I'd like to do. So why not go the opposite way and make my sh the shortness of my life all about me and making something about myself for people to remember? Well, certainly you have to say this is not in line with the gospel. Certainly not in line with uh, the title of the sermon this morning. And yet it is the temptation for us. 
If we cannot master time, we'll just allow, allow ourselves to be enslaved to it and seek our own greatness the best that we can. Some of us live day by day pursuing our own greatness. And that's not to say that you wake up every morning and you put a crown on your head and you wear a t-shirt that says best dad or best whoever or whatever I am and want everybody to know how great we are, but we center our decisions and our scheduling and our planning and everything that we do around ourselves. And that is the pursuit of greatness. That is to say that I living in my little fish tank can actually find something notable and worthwhile in and of myself, in my limitations, and embrace that fully. It is to say that the best baseball game happened in 1981 because it was the longest game, because it had everyone's attention for such a long time. Whether we try to maximize our time or maximize the impact that we have in time, we have this threat of seeking our own greatness. And Jesus' listeners here, yeah, they're talking about the greatness of Abraham, but they're wrapping themselves up in that as well, aren't they? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He's our father. We're his children. We're the ones who listen to God. Remember what was said about Abraham, right, in the book of Genesis? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Right standing before God. Why? Because he believed him. That's gospel, people, right? The gospel of Jesus is not, hey, hear, hear what Jesus has done on the cross for you, dying for your sins, rising again, conquering death. And now if you can live a good enough life, now if you can redeem your time really, really well, or if you can make something great of yourself, you could be worthy of the great sacrifice of the Son of God. That is not the gospel. And yet that's what they've turned it into. Because when they think on Abraham, and perhaps if they thought of that passage in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, they're putting so much wrong emphasis on that action of believing. As though there was something about Abraham that was so special and so great. And so we are so special and so great when we are the ones who believe God. God's true people are never impressed with themselves. Well, not never. Uh, do not live perpetually with an impression of their own greatness because they believed God. We are meant to live in humility, even as Christ did. Jesus says again in verse 49, I do not, see, sorry, 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. This is the attitude of the Christian as well. If we have been so redeemed by this kind of savior, we can't live day by day seeking our own glory. That is fulfilling our own plans and doing everything for our own greatness, for our own purposes. And yet as time escapes us and as we try to maximize our time here on earth, we do so often end up pursuing our own greatness. If Christ's greatness isn't evident and supreme in our lives, it may be because we are enticed by that pursuit of personal greatness. It may be that we're overwhelmed with the shortness of time and Jesus doesn't seem worthy of the little bit of time that he, in fact, has given us. It's easy to get really practical with this, with this big, weighty, heavy doctrine of the eternality of Christ. No beginning, no ending. Never a time when he was not. Always going to be a time where he is. And taking that into the practical sense and saying, this is the God that we are supposed to follow, the light of the world. 
the one that we are supposed to know intimately, the one that we are supposed to live in obedience to, to seek his glory. And we've, given, we've been given just this little blip, this little short period of time wherein God calls us to do such a thing. And yet we are tempted day by day to either live like a king, like that first offer that Achilles had, live as a king, live a long, peaceful life, or no one will bother you and you'll just have everything you could ever want. Or we're tempted to live like a hero, to be somebody of notability, to be remembered and to be thought much of so that people might see the greatness we know we have in and of ourselves. If we don't have an eternal savior, then we don't have a motivation for eternity. If Christ was just a man, if Christ is dead, we have no hope whatsoever. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, as he's talking about the hope of the resurrection. He says, if the dead are not raised, then we have no hope. Listen to this from, again, 1 Corinthians 15, 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He's talking about being thrown into an arena for the sport of of, of wild beasts and for the entertainment of those around him. What do I have to gain if that happened and the dead are not raised? He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's truly nothing of eternal significance, if there's no resurrection to eternal life, then Paul says in another place, we're among all men the most to be pitied because Christians are meant to live with an eternal perspective that is focused on eternity. You've heard it said, you know, you, there's some Christians who are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's a totally temporary, temp, temporal mindset to have. It's not a mindset of eternity. The mindset of eternity says, hey, the danger is not be, being too heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The danger is being so earthly minded, you're no heavenly good. You're no good for eternity, for the things that will truly last. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we're going to die. It's all going to be over anyway. You know people who have this mindset too, don't you? You know people who don't know Christ, who have no hope of eternity and just want to say, I'm going to eke out as much as I possibly can from this life. And then when it's over, it's over. Jesus says in verses 54 and 55 that self-glory is nothing. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. The reason that time has such a grip on so many, most of the people in the world, is because they don't know God. Because they don't know the one who is above and outside of time and space. And so time is a God in a sense. Greatness is a goal that is meant to be inserted into that short period of time. Because there's no way to override time or escape death if we don't have an eternal savior. Praise the Lord, we do. In Christ, what we have is someone we can turn to in our lives permanently for eternal value, the only eternal God, the great God who has shared his eternal life with us at the cross and thereby revealed his greatness. In verse 56, Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. A mysterious passage, right? 
they all know Abraham's dead. And what is he talking about with this day? D.A. Carson, a, a Bible commentator, suggests that this is perhaps referring to the joy of the birth of Isaac, his son. That impossible situation where time has so worn down on Abraham and how he had lost all opportunities for a family. He and his wife had no children. And God gives Isaac when Abraham's almost 100 years old. And the joy that came from that. D.A. Carson suggests that that was the beginning of the process of realizing the day of Christ. That the joy that Abraham had in his son Isaac was not in the temporary, ultimately, was not in the temporary hope that now I'm going to have a son and he's going to grow up and, well, I'll get to teach him all these things. And I mean, Abraham's 100 years old. I mean, he doesn't have a whole lot of hope that he's going to see most, most of his son's life anyway. His joy was grounded in something eternal in that Isaac to him was a picture of the process that God had begun. And now in giving his son, Jesus Christ, he has realized it perfectly for us. So that when he's asked in verse 57, have you seen Abraham? Echoing that earlier question, are you greater than him? Who do you think you are? Jesus can calmly, humbly, and even still in the moment of his great eternal nature say, before Abraham was, I am. Referring all the way back to before the Exodus when God met Moses in the desert in a burning bush. And as he's giving his plan to Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, well, what am I going to do when I go to your people? Who am I going to say is sending me? God says, tell them I am has sent you. The eternal one. Do you think rightly of the eternal greatness of Christ this morning? Sin has brought death because we don't think that way. Because even back in the garden, you can trace this idea of eternality back to Adam and Eve. And in that very moment where there was a desire for personal greatness, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and threw away the eternity of happiness that, Christ had, that God had designed for them and had now sent Christ to redeem Death comes because of that. And yet Jesus promises that if anyone keeps his word, if anyone treasures his word, if anyone obeys his word, if anyone hears it, accepts it, and, and faith grows up in them because of it, if that's true, then death will not be seen by them. Just like his hearers, we might be responding to, listen, Lord, I've known enough people who know you and they've still died. What are you talking about? We know he's talking about something bigger than this. He's making such a statement about death that is to say that the one who keeps the word of Christ will never see death means that they will never see the true reality of what their sin has brought them to, eternal death. Because even though we're fallen, we haven't lost the, our own eternal nature in that not that we don't have a beginning, we do have a beginning, but we were created for an eternal timeline to go from one point to never ending. And the death that Jesus is saying will not be seen by his people is the death that goes on for eternity, an eternal punishment for sin. Eternally, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the right and good displeasure of the eternal God poured out on his enemies will not be seen by those who trust in Christ. Because Christ is eternal, his words carry eternal truth and great power. His actions, particularly the action of him going to the cross, becoming a substitute for us, 
His actions send eternal ripples throughout history and effectively work out his plan to completion. He's unaffected by time. He said it so many times already in the Gospel of John that his hour had not yet come. That is to say, time wasn't ruling over Jesus. He was ruling over time. Even in this moment of opposition, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. How's he going to do that? Everybody's eyes are fixed on him. How is it that Jesus hides himself? I don't think he said, hey, what's that? And everybody turned around and then he ran off out of the city. We're talking about the eternal great God being able to say, it's not time yet. Think about another I am statement later on in the gospel of John when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and Jesus says, whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Jesus say? I am he. And how do they respond to that? Oh, good. Here's our, no, they're, they're thrown back. They fall on their faces. They're just the words of Christ have such an impact. While time pursues us, while time masters us and escapes us, his grace frees us from what time would constrain us to, would lead us to that second and the reality of the ultimate death, the eternal death. And now the death that we will face because, hey, we're all going to die someday. That real death is just a shadow of what we've escaped. And in fact, Psalm 116, 15 says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? Why could that be precious? It's one of the saddest moments in anyone's life to watch a loved one die. And yet for God, when he sees his beloved children pass out of this life, they're coming into his life. The full realization of the eternal life that Christ has shared with them. That death is just a shadow. And we see then his greatness. And we see that in his greatness, his greatness is not in his pursuit of his greatness, that is the greatness of his father for the son or the greatness of the son for the father. And their unity together might make us say, well, isn't this a self-centered kind of God? That he would create time to make us live in it just to pursue his own glory. Uh, Tim Keller said a great thing on this. He says that if Jesus is the eternal God, if he is satisfied in the glory of his father, the love of his father, the unity between father, son, and Holy Spirit, if that is all true, then his seeking his glory inside of time and through the lives of people is not selfishness. It's actually sharing. It is sharing the goodness of that glory and that greatness and that eternal life. It's actually very humbling. It's the opposite of self-centeredness for God to seek his own glory in your life in the amount of time that he's given you. So if that's true, what must, what must we do? If we're in Christ, we need to walk in that eternal life in his greatness and redeem that time in joy. Abraham, who was for a long time at the end of his rope, thinking this was not going to come about, his family that he dreamed of was never going to happen, was able to rejoice at the prospect of the day of Christ. And we who see so much more than Abraham, we who have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, if Christ has redeemed us and made us new and granted us faith in him, have so much more anticipation and so much more access to joy in the midst of time. We have that same great confidence that Christ did that in that last moment as he was speaking all the things as the, his father told him to do. And as his enemies were picking up stones, he had every confidence that he was just going to walk away from it because the time hadn't come yet. 
we have that same exact confidence. J.C. Ryle says, nothing could happen until the time. And when it came, it was not because he could not escape, but because he would not. So when Christ's time had come to go to the cross, it wasn't as though he said, well, hey, my time's up. Time has finally pursued me and caught me. It is my true master. No, it was the time where he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. That's the kind of confidence you have, Christian, as you face the confines of time and the, the temptation to pursue your own greatness. Pursue the greatness of Christ. Have that eternal perspective. A couple of things in closing. Dia Carson said in, in light of this passage that in the Gospel of John, knowledge of God cannot be separated from obedience. We can't just take this great truth of Jesus is eternal. That sounds awesome. How are we going to walk in obedience in all of this? First of all, I'd say don't fear times passing. That's easier said than done, isn't it? I'm already afraid I'm not going to have time for everything I'm supposed to do after church is over. I'm so afraid that I'm not, this week is going to fly by and I'm not going to accomplish all my goals or something's going to happen that's going to throw off all my plans. Don't fear times passing. Jesus is undiminished by it. And if we're in him, so are we. Yeah, our outer self will waste away. This tent is not who we truly are. Our eternal life in Christ is secure and undiminished by the passing of time, so don't be afraid of it. Secondly, consider time as a true precious commodity, as a gift from God. Walk in the abundance of grace that he gives you to redeem it well. Because he pours out grace on his people, moment by moment. His mercies are new every morning. The goodness of God is not something that is far away from you and you don't have time to find it and figure it out. See time as a precious commodity wherein you might glorify your Savior. That you might take every moment of every day, not to say, well, I can't work my job today. I've got to glorify Jesus, so I've got to read my Bible. No, but to walk with him through it, realizing his presence with you means he's got a plan for you when you go to work tomorrow morning. He's got a plan for you when you make dinner, when you wash the dishes, when you change the 18th dirty diaper. He has a plan to redeem that for his own glory. And as we're in relationship with Christ and as we look to him, we'll discover that moment by moment. Time is a precious commodity. Keep his word. Walk in that obedience. The spirit is empowering you for it. Cherish his word. Memorize his word. Remind yourself of his word and let it be something that refuels you every day. That's what the spirit does in the life of a believer. Thirdly, endure with the savior. Just as he endured through all this ridicule. I mean, this 59 verses in chapter eight of just opposition. And never once did Jesus say, man, forget you guys, I'm out of here. I mean, it took them picking up stones to kill him for Jesus to say, it's not time for that yet. You guys are done. Will you also endure with the savior since you share in his life, you share his ridicule. Don't be surprised when you face opposition, when you're trying to live out the life that displays the greatness of Christ rather than your own greatness. We talk about it all the time. We're, we're annoyed with people who are so self-centered and so absorbed. But apart from Christ, we're far more annoyed with those people who are more absorbed in Jesus. That's what's shown here by Jesus' opposition. It's something that we'll face as well. Endure with the Savior in it. And then lastly, look to the day of his return. It's closer than 10.30 when we started our service. It's 11.38. Jesus is closer to coming back now than he was before you walked into this building. Is that your true hope? Is that what time is marching on for? Not truly the end, but truly the beginning, truly the, the 
culmination of all that you've hoped for, all that Christ has done and is doing in your life. Listen to Romans 12. Paul says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Every time you read that verse, it becomes truer. Your salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed. And it's nearer to you now. And it's nearer to you now. And you know what? It's even nearer now. With that kind of perspective, time is not the master, it's not the pursuer, it's not the thing that escapes us. It's the setting on which we find opportunity to proclaim the greatness of Christ and to trust in him. Take one thing this this week, one little action, and look at your schedule. Maybe you write it out. Maybe you keep it in your phone. Would you maybe even write that phrase, reveal the greatness of Christ this week? How would that transform the outlook of all the things you plan, the things you need to plan? You need to go to the meeting. You need to make the appointment. You need to do the grocery shopping, all those kinds of things. How could you find the greatness of Christ in that moment by moment, redeeming the time, waiting for him, and seeking not your own greatness, but his? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning that as time marches on, Our salvation is nearer today than it was before. It's nearer than when we first believed, that moment where you so changed our lives and transformed our perspectives, made us new in Christ and united with him even. And Lord, even now our salvation is nearer. Are we ready? Lord, how can we take our plans for this Sunday afternoon and the week ahead and the month ahead and Before we know it, it's Easter. Before we know it, the year's halfway done. How can we take these things and bring our true focus, our true desire to be your greatness? Unless you work, unless your word transforms us, would you do that for your great glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen.